as well as just the subjects in general uh, my kind of preaching my favorite kind of preaching is not the kind of I do here my favorite type is Bible exposition and I guess I learned that from my dispensational background just getting into the text and starting going through the verse by verse stuff that's my favorite style of preaching but uh, you asked a question on on the place of children in the covenant and so forth amplify that my question was um, if Christian parents are faithful in um, keeping the covenant and raising their children in nurture and admonition of the Lord will God bless them by um, you know causing our children to come to faith in him without exception without exception okay I'll turn to Genesis chapter 17 of course it's one of one of the favorite texts my favorite text and so your basic question has to do with the place of the child in relation to Christ and uh, the whole Abrahamic covenant is crucial for that you know that and here's God God's promise uh, a good book on those lines is uh, John Murray's book on uh, baptism. You've got John Murray's book on baptism? It's a skinny little thing. doesn't take long to read, but it, it's very profound because John, uh, Dr. Murray wrote very succinctly. And it, I, I read it for years and didn't understand it. And I think I talked to Bob Newsom about it, and Bob said, this is what it means, dot, 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 one little phrase. And then all of a sudden, oh, I've been missing it all the time. And then I've been rereading it. So Murray's book on baptism is excellent. There's a lot of good books on baptism. The Genesis 17, God's covenant. Uh, let me dive into the middle of this. Uh, look down at verse uh, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me, you, and your seed after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you and I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be your God um, so God comes to Abraham this is not the first time he comes to Abraham okay but he comes to Abraham and he doesn't come to Abraham to, to negotiate the covenant as presented in scripture is not a negotiation okay it's not a business contract labor contract as Dr. Shepard would say he comes with the covenant. He comes and introduces himself and says, I am God. See in verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. So he comes with his covenant. He doesn't ask Abraham. Abraham, how'd you like to join my covenant? You don't sign up. He's not asking anything. He comes. So right from the very text, from Genesis 12 as well as 17, election is brought right into it. God comes to Abraham. And for nothing in Abraham because you see in verse 1 the Lord appeared to Abram and said I am God Almighty not please walk before me or if you walk before me and if you're perfect then I will make my covenant doesn't say that it says you walk before me there's the demand so first of all what you come in contact with Genesis is, the, is immediately the promise God introduces and comes and speaks and brings Abraham in and in the context of that is responsibility is obedience so the overarching thing is that God comes graciously now there's anything in Abraham no there's nothing in Abraham for that attracted God there's nothing in Abraham that attracted God because God says to Abraham walk before me and be perfect so it wasn't based on Abraham's perfection or walking or anything of the sort and then he says Verse 2, I will make my covenant between me and you. And notice how he denominates it again. This is my covenant. There's no negotiation involved. You're in it. But when you look at verse 17, he expounds on that a little bit more. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee. So when he makes the covenant with Abraham, he doesn't make it with Abraham. And then 15 years later with the seed okay he makes it with Abraham and the seed Pumped right then and he says I will be a God to you look in verse 7 
I will be a God to you, and later on, I'll be a God to your seed, whenever they come around to it. Okay? okay. <laughs> it doesn't say that. No. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. I, I slipped that in there so you, I'm trying to deceive you. Listen now. It doesn't say, I will be, verse 7, I will make this everlasting covenant for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you, and then later on, when your seed grows up, to be their God too. Whenever they come around to it, realize that they're lost and so forth. doesn't say that. That's not the covenant. The covenant was with Abraham and his seed then. Okay? It's not contingent on whether Abraham and the seed accepted or not. It's based upon grace. So the sovereignty of grace is always permeating this whole thing. And you really, you really begin to feel the graciousness of the covenant when he brings in the seed. Really, you should felt that with Abraham. Because Abraham's no better. If anybody, you know, if God's going to choose anybody on the basis of merit, it would be the children. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to choose anybody on the basis of merit, it should be children because they're at least not as bad as we are. And actually, you see the graciousness of God with Abraham. Abraham comes out of a pagan background. You know, he has his idols and all this other stuff. Uh, but then he brings in the seed. Uh, we kind of reverse that. We say, God's really being gracious in bringing in the seed. Well, it's true, he is. But we can see the graciousness of God more so in bringing in Abraham. But the seed come along with him. Again, verse 7, uh, for an everlasting covenant... Now, what does the expression everlasting covenant mean? To be a God. When he said to be a God unto thee and to thy seed, does that expression to be a God simply mean, I will be deity to you. I'm going to be your deity. I'm going to be your supreme being. Or is there a little bit more to that expression? Is there more than just Somewhere in the great somewhere, here's every word, I believe it. You know the song? I'll break into song if you don't watch out. Did it last night. I thought it did pretty good last night. Anyway, uh, no, he's not, he's not using the concept of uh, I will be your God simply from the perspective of a supreme being. This is a, 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 a peculiar kind of God that he's going to be. What would you say? What kind of a God? Anybody? Just creator God? Well, isn't he, see, isn't he creator God to everybody? And then if he simply says, I'm going to be your God, and that simply means creator. So, no big deal. He's that to everybody. He's that to Pharaoh, too. He's that to Judas, too. In a sense, he's that to Satan. He created the angel, at least. Well, no, there's something peculiar and redemptive about that expression. So when he says, I will be your God, it means I will be your Savior. That's, that's the, the meaning of it. For an everlasting covenant. And so the, the notion of everlasting there just doesn't mean an elongated covenant. What's the New Testament equivalent to everlasting? Eternal life. Exactly. Glorification, Glorification is the, the final stages of that. Exactly. But we talk about eternal life. Now when you hear John 3.16, For God's love of the world, whosoever believes in him has eternal life. You immediately just simply say, elongation of time. Eternal life simply means an elongation of time. Now the expression eternal life means a communion, a saving communion with Christ. Because aren't the wicked, don't the wicked have eternal life? Well, they in a sense live forever in hell apart. But the scripture doesn't say that the wicked have eternal life. See, because eternal life is not simply uh, a long time. Eternal life means communion forever. So here's the expression everlasting covenant. It means a redemptive relationship. To whom now? To you and to your seed. So what God promises to Abraham, he promises to the seed at the exact same time. I'm your God, your Savior. Okay? Uh, now that's not independent of responsibility. It's not independent of accountability either. It specifically says, walk before me and be thou perfect. So though God comes, the, the Lord comes graciously without being asked for. And I think one of your, your, your better or good texts that clarify uh, the doctrine of election is the one in Isaiah 65 and Romans 10. I was found of those that what? Remember that one? 
that didn't seek me. Now, you're not just saying I was found by those that stumbled across me. Or maybe we could opt for that one. I was found by those that did their best looking and lived up to the inner light that was in them. And I, and so I let them find me. Boy, this is really negative. I was found of those that didn't seek me. That's great. And yet he says, on the other hand, I've extended my hands to the gainsaying of wicked people all the time, all day long, he says. So there's a good definition of grace. I was found. And notice that in, in the Hebrew, uh, uh, it's very interesting in Isaiah 65, I was found by those that didn't look for me. That the use of the word find means what? What does find mean when I found something? Okay, but it also implies you were looking for it. You know, I found something. Not all the time. You can find something that you weren't looking for. Oh, look what I found. You know, you weren't necessarily looking for it. Sometimes the word finding implies you were looking for it. But just so you, you don't get confused, he says, I was found by those that didn't look. Great. Okay. So when you look at this, this promise here, it's gracious. And it's gracious to Abraham to the same extent as the child. It's not gracious uh, to the, uh, the parent. And then later on, he'll be gracious to the child. So both parent and child come into that redemptive relationship right then, saving relationship. And not only that, he, he gives you a sign, verse 9, uh, for God said to Abraham, and as for thee, thou shalt keep my covenant, you and your seed. See, there's, there's the accountability. You shall keep my covenant. Now, that expression is a declarative expression. This is an indicative statement. You shall keep my covenant. It's almost predictive. You shall keep my covenant. But remember, the Ten Commandments are technically not Ten Commandments. Eight of the Ten Commandments are indicative. If you're, if you're going to talk grammar, Ten, not eight of the Ten Commandments are indicative. One's an infinitive and the other's an imperative. Thou shalt not steal is not a, 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 a command form. It's not an imperative. It is a command, but it's not, linguistically it's not, it's not an imperative. It's an indicative. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet you realize you shall have no other gods before me. It's not predicting. You shall have no other gods before me. Nor is it simply describing you won't have any other gods. It is a mandate on us. So though the form of the language itself may not be an imperative form, do this. That's true. Here you get that same thing. Uh, verse 10, verse 9. You shall keep my covenant. Is an indicative form. It's not predictive of something that they will do. He just happens to know ahead of time that these guys are going to keep it. You shall keep my covenant. This is along the same order as the Ten Commandments. This is the mandate of God. So the command of God always comes in submission, where's my towel, to the, uh, the grace of God. Let me phrase it this way. This is the way I like to write it. The grace of God is overarching with the responsibility here of man. The command. The command is always subservient to the promise. Now, that, that's my little scheme. That's how I set that up. I don't, it's not side to side. Here's God's promise, and then here is God's, uh, here's the promise, and here's man's responsibility. That almost gives it a teamwork approach. Now, you can talk about teamwork with God. It's a legitimate expression to talk about working with God and God working with you. It's 1 Corinthians 3. You can talk about that. Fellow laborers with God. Legitimate expression. But this is not the idea. God puts in his part, you put in your part, and everything will be hunky-dory. That's not the text. What? I was thinking in the garden, I was thinking that he said, I think there's an attitude on the heart of people who understand it, that you don't look at your children like, they'll come to know the Lord when they're five or six. Or when they get to teenagers, they will come back to him. But you look at your children and say, we are. Yeah. And you do that every day. You are. Where'd I, where'd I put my towel? What do I do with my towel? I know. I am a magician, too. Where is it, dear? <laughs> no. Wow, that's way in there. Okay. This isn't the scheme of the, of the covenant. The scheme is not God does his part, and then you do your part, and you will get the promise. Now, I think that may have been what you sounded like in your question. If we're faithful to do our part, then is it guaranteed? Well, there's a truth to that. If we're faithful, God will give the blessing. 
but there's a phrase that I always like to say that uh, the promise of the covenant is always based upon grace. The nature of promise is grace. That's not independent of responsibility and command. It is not God fulfilling that promise is not based on your obedience, but neither is it without your obedience, but neither is it based on your, but neither is it without your obedience, okay? Now, let me give an example of that. Now, I've answered your question. Your question was, what's the place of the child? The place of the child in you. God brings you both into covenant together. What claim you have for Christ and what claim Christ has on you, he has on your child and to the same extent. Well, and that makes a big difference, too, in how you discipline your children. And you command them to obey because they are in the covenant. Look at this. Look at this. This is what I like to do. What Londa said was right. You you look at your children as belonging to Christ and not as belonging to Christ in an external fashion, whatever external means, or in a superficial fashion, whatever that means. They belong to Christ. Now, again, that doesn't mean, therefore, they don't have to confess Christ. No. Because they belong to Christ, they must confess Christ. Absolutely. We must teach our children right from the beginning. When do you start teaching your children to believe in the Lord Jesus? If you have to wait till you're four years old, forget it. No, don't forget it. But don't wait till you're four years old. You, you, you right, right from the beginning, teach your child so that there's never a day. And this was my personal experience. And my dad's teaching me. My brother's experience is the same way, even though we're raised a Baptist and so forth. It, there was never a day I didn't believe in Jesus as my personal Savior. Now, somewhere along the line, I'm born again. That's true. I have that, that, that uh, new birth experience. I don't know where it is. Okay. I, I don't have to know where it is. God knows where it is. But there was, I can't look back on my past and say, yes, there was a time when I was uh, such and such, but then I finally made a decision. Every decision. It's not that you make one decision for Christ. Is what? That you make every decision for Christ. And so that you teach the child right from the beginning that every decision they make, who they play with in the neighborhood, is, a, is a, in a reality a decision for Christ. Get, them, get the child self-conscious about his covenant standing. That's the beauty of all this. Now turn to Proverbs. Glad you brought that up. Let's turn to some text in Proverbs. Let's see. Uh, there's a whole bunch here. Let me start. Let me find one that's good. Uh, on children, raising children, disciplining children. Those are the ones I want. Chapter 19. Let's start with 19. And uh, we'll work backwards to some others. Now, the thing you had to realize about the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is, I call the book of Proverbs a commentary on the law. Uh, it's a commentary on the Pentateuch. Because what Proverbs gives you is nothing different than what Moses gave you. Uh, obviously, there's nothing contradictory, and maybe, and obviously, a little more amplification what Moses gave you. The other thing you have to realize about Proverbs is so often we secularize, and here's where our discussions of secular humanism, uh, which I didn't bring up before, we secularize the book of Proverbs. We do a terrible job of secularizing the book of Proverbs. And we have to look at Proverbs in the light of the covenant. Let's phrase it this way we have to look at the light of Proverbs redemptively. We have to look at the light of Proverbs in terms of the promise of Christ, okay? Uh, for, let me just give you an example before we get the text in uh, Proverbs 19. There's a good text that I always like. A good name is rather to be chosen than riches, right? What is the good name rather to be chosen than riches? What does it mean to have a good name? Go ahead. What is a good name rather to be chosen? It's one of those texts, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. A good name is rather to be chosen than riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Okay. First thing that usually comes to mind is reputation. And that's, there's a truth to that. It's reputation. But if that's all that it means, just have it, isn't it good to have a good reputation in the community? Do you have a good reputation in the neighborhood now? You should have a good reputation in the neighborhood. I don't think that's what Proverbs is getting at. The idea of reputation is there. But I think there's more to it than that. What is the good name that is rather to be chosen than riches? Exactly. That's the name. Now, that won't give you necessarily a good reputation in the community. My name is Mud in certain communities, which is fine. Uh, and your name will be Sue if you live up for Christ. So when you look at that text at 22, a good name is rather to be chosen. That's not an exhortation of being a good and nice person. 
have a good reputation, don't rock the boat. It's talking, we must look at that redemptively, that is, we must look at that in the light of Christ, which means the good name that we ought to strive for is the name of Christ, rather to be chosen than riches, okay? Which includes the notion of reputation. Let your reputation be of the good name, okay? Now, in chapter 19, uh, jump down to verse uh, 18. Here's on discipline. Uh, again, when you look at this uh, injunction on disciplining the child, it's against the background of the covenant, or I could say the covenant of Abraham. I'll just throw that in there. Historically, it's against the background of the covenant of Abraham. It assumes that, as you read through Proverbs, chasten your son, seeing there is hope, and set not your heart on his destruction. Again, you can, sometimes when you look at that, uh, it's just talking about disciplining your child, seeing that there is some kind of hope. You know, what do you do with a kid that doesn't have a whole lot of hope? Don't discipline him? What? But no, discipline your child, seeing that there is some hope. Uh, you look at your child, and there's some potential. See, we look at the word hope in terms of potential. You know, they're uh, friendly and nice, and they get along with the other children in the neighborhood. Okay, it's, it's, there's potential in that. Uh, you know, they don't study and uh, listen to the radio all day, and there's little less potential, and there's nothing but hope. You know, you haven't got anything else visible to look at. And set not your heart on his destruction. Uh, you're not going to kill your kid, you know. I don't think it's referring to that. Chasten your son while there is hope. The hope there is what? What is the hope? This word hope there is not a secularized hope, a kind of hope so, kind of a hope, uh, you know, it's the hope of the covenant. And the hope of the covenant is when the psalmist says, uh, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God. What's he, mean? What's he mean by hope in God? Believe him, you know. Trust the Lord is the expression we would use. Uh, in uh, the prophecies of Isaiah, it talks about uh, when Christ will come, the nations, the isles, will hope in his law. Now, the Greek translation of that, the Septuagint translation, which you find in Matthew 12, says uh, the isles will trust him. Now, that's what the translation of the Hebrew turned out to be. Hope in his law was trust the Lord. Those aren't conflicting things. That's not a mistranslation. That's how they understood hope, you see. Hope was redemptive there. Chasing your son, seeing that there is hope. In other words, for the covenant child and the believing household, we, uh, we start out with hope. Now, I like the way uh, Norm Shepard phrases it. It's not an assumed hope. I mean, it's not just something we just take for granted. This is the covenant promise that the child has. As much as it's for you, it's for the child. Uh, chapter 23, chapter 23, verse 13. Same idea. Again, let me give you another illustration before we get into this text in Proverbs. Uh, there's, a, there's a proverb that talks about in the counsel of many is wisdom. Another one says in the counsel of many is safety. Okay. Now, that seems like it's simply saying, get a lot of advice from a lot of people and you'll be safe. And I don't think Proverbs, Solomon is just saying, get a lot of advice from a lot of people. It's good to get a lot of advice. And I know a lot of people who want to make a decision, a crucial decision, you know, whether they're going to have surgery on something else. And so they don't call doctors and so forth. They call everybody. And what happens when you start calling everybody? You get all kinds, some people will say, a fellow in our church had skin cancer. So what should he do? Some said surgery, radical surgery, going to get it, melanoma, you know, bad stuff. Others said, don't trust them. Diet will do it. <laughs> and boy, that's a scary one to go for. He went for the surgery and he's okay. Now, if he went for diet, we don't know what he would be. But uh, there he was torn between in the council of many is safety. Confusion, too. In the council of many is safety. Well, everybody was contradicting each other. I don't think in the council of many is wisdom should be seen simply as talking to a lot of people, getting a lot of advice. It assumes that this is the council of the covenant community, is what it's talking about. In the council of the covenant community, we would talk about, go to this session and talk to them. Because they're not to be an end all of life either, but still, in, within the covenant community, there is safety. 
That's not simply just getting opinions. See, that's a secularizing of the text if it simply means get a lot of people's opinions. Now here again is uh, Proverbs 23, verse 13. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and shall deliver his soul from hell. Now this is one that really gets wrenched all over the place because people secularize the text. Beat your child. And there are some groups and uh, um, churches that believe that that's what you should do. Beat your child. Not, uh, you know, spanking your child is fine, but when you spank a child, are you beating your child? Is it talking about spanking your child? Withhold well, that correction from your child. If you beat him, he will not die. You know, you won't die, can you live through this? My kid's screaming, it's okay, you won't die. And there are parents that are serious about that. I'm not opposed to spanking or physical corporal punishment. I don't think that's the point of the text again. We have to look at the text redemptively. Withhold not correction from the child. If you beat him, he will not die. If you beat him with the rod, you shall deliver his soul from hell. You're talking about teaching the child about Christ. Part of that teaching of Christ includes corporal punishment for sure. But it's not talking about corporal punishment as such, by itself. It's not talking about simply discipline your child. That child's not disciplined. That's why it's so evil. Now, if we could just discipline the child, get back to disciplining the child. There's no hope given in Scripture for disciplining the child. It's disciplining the child in Christ. And that's your hope. A lot of kids will get disciplined as such, but that's not the promise. The promise of Christ is being disciplined in Christ. Withhold not correction from the child. And that correction is biblical correction, Christian correction, uh, godly correction, if you will, spirit-filled correction. If you beat him, he will not die. Again, I don't think it's saying beat him. Somehow he'll stay alive through the incarceration and the beating and the whipping. No, I think the die means eternal death. I think that's the point. If you discipline him, he will feel that discipline. Whether it's a corporal punishment when they're younger, a little bit less when they're older, he won't die, and you can give him that. Son, you won't die. This is for eternal life. Uh, oh, yeah. Exactly. I'll get to that one too. That's a good one. Uh, Thou shalt beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from what? Yeah, literally the word is the grave. Hell is a King James translation. Sheol is the Hebrew. But the point is, you will deliver his soul from eternal death. And that's our concern, you see. Okay, let's kill him. No, that's not what he's saying either. He's saying, this is covenant hope. Chasing your child while there is hope. You don't get that hope by looking at the child's acts. I don't get a whole lot of hope by looking at the kids. You know, what's a carnal Christian? What's Paul say a carnal Christian is? 1 Corinthians 3. What's a car, how does he describe a carnal Christian? Well, to, it's, it's to be death, but it's a babe in Christ. He describes a carnal Christian as a babe in Christ. And you know, and those covenant children start out as babes in Christ. They start out. And Proverbs talks about that. Uh, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction will drive it from them. Now, again, that foolishness, that appeal to foolishness, is not knocking things over and tripping and spilling. That's not the foolishness that's in mind here. It's the sinfulness that's in them and the rod of correction, which encompasses corporal punishment, but not at every case. That will drive it from him. And the foolishness in Scripture is their ungodliness. I want to drive ungodliness from my children right from the beginning. Okay. Oh, oh Herm? As much as as much as you're assured about your salvation, and you're no longer assured of your salvation, independent of obedience, the assurance rests not on your obedience, but in the promise of God. Now, do you, whatever assurance you have of your salvation, you have for your child, which is not absolutistic which simply means it's not as though God promised regardless of what you do. The promise is not based on what you do, but neither is it regardless of what you do. 
Exactly. You can't avoid that. And that's why Ephesians 3, 5, uh, uh, Titus, is real good along these lines. I want to get to the Ephesians ones. Wanda again?
How can you shall love the Lord your God be the first commandment and then the fifth commandment be the first commandment with promise? How is it? Well, it's this way. They're the same commandment. What's the first thing Adam is going to learn? What's the first thing Adam is going to learn? Right from the beginning. To love his father. Exactly. Honor your father, Adam. Love the Lord your God. I mean, there's no loving the Lord your God, the first one and the fifth one being something else. Uh, the first thing Adam learns right from the beginning is honor your father, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and mind. This is the first one with promise. And there's the word promise again. And this, is, this word promise here, again, doesn't mean a futuristic promise if you follow it out. It's true there's a future promise if you follow it out. But this is the first commandment in the context of promise. See, this takes us back before the fall. This takes us back before the fall into sin. It's the first commandment with promise of eternal life. Uh, keep going. Uh, verse 3. That it may be well with thee that you may live long in the land. Now, again, I don't think that he's simply saying you will live a longer life if you obey your folks. Right? Haven't you threatened uh, death to your children? They wouldn't make it through sixth grade. Remember those days? They wouldn't make it through eleventh grade. They'll get it. I'm going to kill you. Uh, and finally, when they were obedient, see, you did last. You did graduate from high school. Okay. I don't think, again, that it's merely talking about you're just going to live a little bit longer uh, on earth because there's a lot of children who are obedient that died early years. I think what it's talking about, again, is eternal life. And when does eternal life begin? Yeah, not when you're dead. Right now, see, you can have eternal life, that you may live long on the earth. And the living long on the earth, I say, is referring to eternal life. Because there's going to be a new earth that's going to be forever. See, I'm not going to be stuck on the old one. I'll be taken away from the old one. The old one's going to be taken away, and we're going to have a new one. It's still going to be here. Okay? There's a new earth that you may live long on the earth is referring to more than just the elongation of time, but to eternal life. Now, how would, in the Old Testament, I brought this up last night, in the Old Testament, how did the covenant father live? Through his children, exactly. I will continue to live. See, that's the covenant promise. My name will live on through my sons and daughters and so forth, and through their sons and daughters, you see. And when we say my name, again, you're not just talking about McElhenney, for the girls may lose that particular name, pick up another one, Tabasco sauce or something else. But my name, that promise continues. I continue to live through them. Well, I, I'm in heaven too, for sure. You see. Uh, finishing this up, verse 4. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but nurture them in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. Okay, another theory uh, on verse 4. Again, what I think the emphasis is there, provoke not your children to wrath. I think it's God's wrath that's being talked about. I don't think it's simply saying, uh, don't get your kids upset. Be careful about disciplining you, but could get them upset. So when you teach them the Bible and you have memorized Bible verses, make sure they do it pleasantly. You make it a fun project for them so that they learn this thing, you know, and they're smiling through their three chapters of Romans that they have to memorize before dinner time. No, I don't think it's, it just simply means fathers provoke not your children to getting upset. Because it's in contrast to, but nurture them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. So I think the wrath involved there is not their anger and upset, but God's wrath. Uh, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. And what's one way you can provoke your children to wrath? Don't discipline them in the Lord. You may be strict on them, but you haven't disciplined them in the Lord. And it's disciplining in the Lord cultivating them. Now, that's not the normal interpretation of that text, so anybody can, uh, you can challenge me on that and shoot me down. Doc? You think that's the you I'm proposing that. Yeah, uh, I'm proposing that because of the use of... Yeah. Now, you can challenge that. That's okay. Yeah, I think the exasperation, again, is not some little frustration that the kid has. I don't think he's simply saying, don't get your kids upset about teaching Bible to them. I think the upset and frustration has to do with living the Christian life. Maybe that's a modification of that. I mean, you can challenge it. Mm -hmm. Stretching it. 
You can stretch it. Me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Cal. I, you know, I, had, I had another question to throw up, but going to what you're talking about here is the uh, bringing a child to the admonition of the Lord. Discipline, I agree with you there, but I think that in that is the fairness of, of good discipline. I mean, you don't beat your child for something you didn't do. You, you don't do, you know, when you discipline your child, you discipline them fairly in the Lord. Which should be a fair discipline. It shouldn't be something, you know, flat angry. You be because, not because you do something particularly wrong, but because you're particularly angry. And you're a simple parent. You may be disturbed. Right. But I want to bring up something uh, that Herman has brought up about uh, you bring you discipline your child correctly and blah, 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 therefore, you know, it's God's sort of bound in that covenant. I understand your answer you gave, but then what would the responsibility be then to say, here are some children that have gone astray, is the parent's fault then? Or, of course, there's that personal fault on the time, but you think the parent's fault. Could a parent, could everybody in the situation a parent have done the, the really the best on physical that they could, and the child has away anyway? Is that, is that a possibility in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you have the law. It's definitely a different child has gone off, you still have gotten into all kinds of problems, and it's not going to be it's definitely a different No. It doesn't follow that because the child goes apostate, it's the parent's fault. It could be. Parents always feel guilty about that, but it doesn't necessarily follow. The law of the Old Testament was, if you had a son that was a drunkard and a, and a dissipant and all that kind of stuff, what were you to do? You were to bring him to the court and try him and stone him and so forth. And the assumption was that you were not guilty. He's the guilty party. You're not. And part of your parental responsibilities was to see that your son was uh, put to death. Wow, that's a horrible thing. <laughs> and, and that really includes that idea it wouldn't live long on the earth. But I don't think, no, it doesn't follow that because your child goes apostate, you've been uh, lackadaisical in that. Could be. Could be. It sure is his promise, not independent of obedience. Yeah, you, you look at the cases of uh, Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, and there are some that go astray. The, 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 the promise of God is not mechanical, that God's going to keep you no matter what. He doesn't promise to keep you no matter what. Peter says he keeps you by the power of God through faith. It's not because of faith, it doesn't rest ultimately on your faith, but it's not independent of faith. And yes, there are those that do grow apostate. And then you have Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's still a promise there. And there's some meaning to that. Uh, I think you have to look at that in the light of the covenant. Now, I disagree with J. Adams, because he translates this, train up as a child according to his own way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Meaning, train up a child, and if you're stupid in your training, he'll grow up stupid, and that'll be the end of it. The only, Jay says, this simply means that the way you train a child is the way it's going to turn out. Yeah, I, I don't think that's the meaning of the text at all. I, literally, it does say, train up a child according to his way. It almost sounds like, well, according to any way. I mean, it could be anything. But again, pardon me? Yeah, I think that's the point of the text, but literally it doesn't say that because of the, of the context of the child in the covenant and because of the nature of training in there. It's perfectly scriptural and legitimate to translate it, train up a child in his own way, and when he is old he will not depart from it. And I think you have that general, you have that promise, a general promise. Okay. How do you explain this when a child is trained there's a condition to promise. There's a truth to that. That's true. The child has his own responsibility and accountability. It is not wholly tied to the parent. Okay? When God brings in the child, that doesn't mean that the child is wholly uh, left up to the parent. The child has his own accountability and responsibility, and God will deal with that child, too. And that. And the covenant promise, again, is not a mechanical thing. It's not automatic. There's a condition to it. But the promise is made to the parents, though. And the child, yeah. Parents and child, yeah. Well, if the parent keeps their end of the promise. <laughs> That's the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, we get you might say you follow the purpose. 
good men did a good job, but it was the last, last thing. In other words, it wasn't simply, I'm going to keep your child, period. It's, I'm going to keep your child, by grace, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, if he doesn't walk, he's not going to get to heaven, is he? Yeah. Don't you think also that there really is elements of mystery okay. in this that's designed to keep us on our, on our faces before God? I mean, we can't, I mean, we're trying to parcel this out and deal with the secret things belonging to the Lord our God, yeah. Now, to me, That's not an excuse either. That would be the core of walking by faith. If we didn't have to be that way, think we would not. That's the kernel of our, of our faith. But getting back to that verse, what does older mean? Does it mean, can 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 it when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay, John. about our children falling away too we're far more aware and sensitive to that but you bo- I, I would agree 
that by and large it's the covenant people that perpetuate the covenant people and our children. An older friend who was counseling this stuff, the uh, and giving her insight, she said her greatest understanding came. She's a mother of six children, grown uh, older than I am, but she's done. She said that when I came to the conclusion that God, if He wanted to, could of my loins produce a non elect, I knew that God was God. It, it, it can happen, but we have the promise of the covenant, which we fall on. That, that, you know, this is something that makes life your father and children. And obviously, not, there are Jacob I love. And, and so often I hate it. And, and you've got to not get into Well, uh, yes, yes. This lady here. And thank God that your kid's salvation doesn't depend upon the best you can do. Thank God for that. And even if it is the best that anybody else can do, it rests on grace. But you still have the promise. He's not dead yet. While he's still alive, he still has the promise. Mm-hmm. And not only that, I'll, I'll push it a little bit further. You have the promise not because you claimed it, but because God claimed it. Not because you uh, you uh, were able to, Lord, I claim them for you, and so forth. I mean, you do that. You do things like that. But ultimately, it rests with God's prior claim on your son. And thank God for that. Now, i got three o'clock, so I'm ready to quit. Yeah. My elder's wife, she got converted from university and she came to the Lord. She was the only one in her family, uh, two other sisters and so forth. The parents are super rebellious, hate the gospel passionately, and her mother's dying of emphysema, gagging right now to death and openly hates the gospel and mocks uh, her daughter. Well, lo and behold, it found out, she just found out that her mother came from a Christian family, that her grandmother was a believer. And all the other children are believers, except the daughter, who was the, the mother to this gal. And she began to see, there's the covenant line, once again passed down. Hopefully this mother, while she's still alive, while she got breath, and the Lord will save her. We, we pray to that end. We don't know, but we trust the Lord. So forth. Okay. Well, three o'clock. You're, you're dismissed, and I can talk to anybody else, uh, personally or privately or... Thank you.